What did Abram do to motivate God to make this promise to him? Absolutely nothing. God's covenant is unilateral. It's a one-way covenant, and it's an unconditional covenant. That means there are no conditions attached. It's based on God's grace alone. Welcome to The Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to The Fox Den. In this episode, we're going to look at Genesis chapters 12 to 14. But to begin, let's quickly review chapters 1 through 11. In those first 11 chapters, God revealed himself as the powerful creator of the world, creating all things by the power of his word. And then he showed us that mankind fell through Adam's act of disobedience. As a result of Satan's treacherous act, tempting Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, God promised to defeat Satan. And as we move through the first several chapters of Genesis, we see the devastating effects of sin. Not only did one brother kill another, but mankind became so corrupt that God destroyed all living things on the face of the earth with a flood of water. Yet, because God promised to defeat Satan through the offspring of Eve, God rescued Noah. And once the floodwaters receded, Noah and his family got off the ark. And then we see that that didn't fix the sin problem. Ham sinned, and therefore God cursed Canaan, Ham's son. Now, Canaan is a name that we have to keep in mind because we will see it again in chapter 12. Finally, we see from the line from Noah to Abraham, the Israelites came from Shem, not Ham. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis set the stage for Abraham. And with that in mind, let's jump into chapter 12. Now, keep in mind, Terah, Abram's father, moved his family to Haran, which is in present-day southeastern Turkey. And let me remind you here that Abram is Abraham. God will rename him later. We see in verse 1 of chapter 12 that the Lord calls Abram to go to the land that he will show him. And then God made a promise to Abram. God will make Abram a great nation. And God will bless him and make his name great. Now look very closely at these verses. What did Abram do to motivate God to make this promise to him? Look closely. What did Abram do? Absolutely nothing. This is like the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And quite frankly, the covenant that God made with us in Christ. God's covenant is unilateral. It's a one-way covenant. And it's an unconditional covenant. That means there are no conditions attached. It's based on God's grace alone, not our compliance with the covenant. And here in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise with no stipulations on Abram's part. We have no indication that Abram was a righteous man or a blameless man. We saw that with Noah. Though it says he was a righteous man, however, we know that he wasn't sinless because he died which is the penalty for sin. But for Abram, there's no indication whatsoever that he was a righteous man. The best we have is a presumption that he was righteous, which we can't do because we will see later that Abram dies. So Abram took Sarai, his wife, and he took his nephew, and they moved to the land of Canaan. And he was 75 years old when he left Haran. And as a side note, why did Moses tell us that Abram took Lot? Well, Moses is introducing him here because later we're going to see his descendants. Now, back to Genesis chapter 12. 
After Abram arrived in Canaan, the Lord told him that he was going to give him this land. And this land is present-day Israel. And after God made this promise, Abram built an altar to the Lord. Now, I discussed the significance of the altar in episode 81. But in his book, Studies in the Book of Genesis, Robert Harbach says the altar is an important figure in worship. It's the place where the holy God meets sinful man. So Abram worshiped God. Now, following this, there was a famine in the land. So Abram took his wife, Sarai, to Egypt. When they got there, Abram was a bit concerned for his life. He thought the Egyptians would kill him and take his wife. So how did he deal with this challenge? He told Sarai to tell others that she was Abram's sister. Are you following what's going on here? He's not being completely truthful about his relationship with his wife in order to protect himself. Well, shortly after arriving to Egypt, she was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he dealt well with Abram for Sarai's sake. Obviously, what's going on here is that he took Sarai as his wife. Why wouldn't he? As far as he knew, she was Abram's sister. Well, that didn't go well. God afflicted Pharaoh and his household with a plague. So Pharaoh confronted Abram about his lie. And then he gave Sarai back to Abram. Then we see in Genesis chapter 13 that Abram takes Sarai and Lot and they go to Negev, which is in present-day southern Israel. And they returned to the place where he first arrived in the land of Canaan. And he returned to the altar that he made back then. And what did he do when he returned? He called upon the name of the Lord. We're getting a glimpse of this man of faith. Now let me reiterate here that he was not sinless. On the contrary, he was a sinner who believed God. And building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord is proof of his faith. So Moses is giving the Israelites and us a glimpse of the man that Abram was. He was a sinner, but he was also a man of faith, worshiping the God who called him to go to the land of Canaan, the land of the man cursed by God. Now, Abram and Lot had many possessions, so they were having trouble dwelling in the same land. So the two of them decided to separate, and Lot went to Zoar which was located southeast of the Dead Sea. Notice that Moses states that this was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses is setting the stage for the Sodom and Gomorrah event, which we will see in Genesis chapter 19. But here we see that Lot settled as far as Sodom. And Moses makes a point here to mention the degeneracy of Sodom. The men of Sodom were wicked and their sin against the Lord was great. Again, he's setting the stage for Genesis chapter 19. Coming back to Genesis chapter 13, in verse 14 to the end of the chapter, God shows Abram the land that he's giving him. And it concludes with Abram moving to Hebron and building an altar to the Lord there. Once again, we see Abram as a man of faith. In chapter 14, we find two events. First, Lot was taken captive and Abram went to rescue him. Next, we see Melchizedek. And here, Abram meets Melchizedek, who brought out bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? Now, certainly bread and wine were common food and drink in those days. After all, bread is very common to all cultures. However, I don't think this is a coincidence. Where else do we see bread and wine? Communion, or the Lord's Supper. Keep in mind that Melchizedek existed several hundred years before Jesus was even born and before his crucifixion. So at this point, 
keep the Lord's Supper in the back of your mind, because we're going to take a closer look at Melchizedek. Now, perhaps Moses didn't know why he added this piece of information, but God did. God was pointing us to Jesus here with Melchizedek. Now, let's take a closer look at who he is. Well, Moses tells us, first, he was the king of Salem. Now, Salem was Jerusalem. And second, he was the priest of the Most High God. So, Melchizedek was both king and priest. Now, this is unusual. When you look at the Old Testament history, you see kings and you see priests. But you don't see one who is both king and priest. There's only one who is king and priest, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, I think it might be helpful to review a few catechism questions. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 23, asks, What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And it answers by saying, Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Notice here that Jesus executes three offices. Notice also that it says that he executes these offices in his estates of humiliation and exaltation. What does that mean? Basically, it means he executes those offices eternally. His humiliation is the time from his conception to his burial, and his exaltation is that time of his resurrection to eternity. So Jesus will execute these offices forever. Now listen to question 24. It asks, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? And it answers by saying, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So as a prophet, Jesus reveals the will of God for our salvation. And how does he do that if he's not walking here on earth? Well, he does it by his word and spirit. What does that mean? We hear his word every Sunday when we attend worship. And the spirit of God works faith in us. In other words, when the preacher proclaims the word of God, Jesus speaks. Now, I've addressed this issue in a previous episode, so I'm not going to go into it in further detail here. But you can listen to episode 26, where I discuss this topic. Next, listen to question 25. It asks, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And it answers by saying, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. The role of a priest was to serve as a mediator between God and man. Man is sinful and can't approach a holy God. So a mediator is necessary to mediate between our holy God and sinful man. Furthermore, the priest couldn't simply approach God on his own. He too was sinful and needed payment for his sins. So a sacrifice was necessary for his sins first, and then it was necessary for the sins of the people. So what's so significant about the sacrifice? Why does a sacrifice appease God? Because of the penalty of sin, man deserves to die. So the slaughtered animal was symbolic of the wrath of God poured out on our sins. Yet the slaughtered animal was merely symbolic. It accomplished nothing on its own. The slaughtered animal represented the person who offered the animal, but it primarily represented Jesus Christ who is our sacrifice. And he is the perfect sacrifice. He was sinless, so he did not have to offer sacrifice for himself. As our perfect sinless sacrifice, he offered himself 
so that our sins would be forgiven. He is the perfect sacrifice. So the Catechism recognizes that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, and he did this as he executed his office of a priest. Yet, offering himself as a sacrifice was only the beginning. He continues to intercede for us on our behalf. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, praying for us, interceding for us. Finally, question 26 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And it answers by saying Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Notice here what Christ does in his office as king. First, he subdues us to himself. In other words, you didn't come to him asking if you could be part of his kingdom. He captured you and brought you into his kingdom. And as a kingdom citizen, he rules you for your good and he defends you. But not only did he subdue you, he restrains and conquers all our enemies. He prevents them from conquering you. On the contrary, he conquered them and is conquering our enemies. Now let's return to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. He is the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. And his name means king of righteousness. He is a representation of Jesus Christ in Abram's day. In fact, we see a clear connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 compares Jesus to Melchizedek. In prophesying about Jesus, Psalm 110 verse 4 says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews quotes this passage as he compares Melchizedek to Jesus in verse 17. Now, coming back to Genesis 14, Melchizedek then blessed Abram, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, Abram was blessed by the king of righteousness, and he gave a tenth of everything to the king of righteousness. So, we see clear parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus. Well, at this point, I think there are several takeaways. First, God didn't enter into covenant with Abram because he was a stellar individual. Though Abram has moments of greatness, overall he proves to be unrighteous. God entered into covenant with Abraham because it pleased God to do so. Furthermore, God's Redeemer will come through Abram. Again, God didn't choose Abram for this based on Abram's righteousness. He did it based on his grace alone. Second, we continue to see glimpses of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Keep in mind that Jesus won't be born for another several hundred years, but we keep seeing pointers to him. Melchizedek is perhaps one of the clearest signs that we see. In fact, we see several parallels between him and Jesus. Where Melchizedek was the king of righteousness, as his name implies, Jesus is the righteous king. Where Melchizedek was king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, Jesus was declared king on the cross in Jerusalem. Hebrews 7 reveals the parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus in much more detail. God has been telling us about Jesus ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As the Old Testament events unfold, clear glimpses of Jesus are revealed. Were the Old Testament believers able to understand this clearly? Probably not but God revealed these glimpses nonetheless. Finally, these glimpses of Jesus throughout the Old Testament should remind us that God has not forgotten his promise to defeat Satan. God is a promise-keeping God, 
and he shouldn't have to give us clues along the way, but he does. He's a promise-keeping God, which means he's going to keep his promise, and it doesn't matter if he tells us or not. He's going to, yet he's gracious to us, and he gives us these hints as history unfolds. And he does this because he knows that our faith is weak. But I believe there's another reason why God gave us those glimpses. He's dropping these clues in the past to help believers recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. For example, while Jesus and two other men hung on the cross, the Romans broke the legs of the other two to speed up their death. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. But John tells us that this was prophetic, and he tells us this in John chapter 19. Going back to the book of Exodus, as the people of Israel prepared to leave their slavery in Egypt, they were to eat the Passover lamb but not break any of its bones. We see that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. The Passover lamb represented Jesus because Paul tells us that he is the Passover lamb. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. So the command not to break any of the bones was a prophecy to Jesus on the cross where they didn't break his legs. Take a look at John chapter 19, verse 36. When they didn't break the legs of Jesus, it reminded them of Exodus chapter 12. And John chapter 19, verse 36 says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So the clues throughout Old Testament history were to be fulfilled to confirm our faith. It was to confirm also that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the risen Savior. There are many reasons to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the risen Savior. And one of those reasons is that God gave us clues about Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. Melchizedek is a huge clue because of the parallels. So God is gracious to us. There's no reason why he should have to remind us that he's keeping his promise. His word is enough. Yet knowing our faith is weak and our vision is dim, he gives us clues in history that he's keeping his promise. And he's giving us clues that confirm that Jesus is the one who will come to defeat Satan. God is a promise-keeping God. And Jesus is the one who came to defeat Satan. So trust God and rest in Christ. Remember, God's covenant with you is based on the same thing that it was with Abram. It's based on the grace of God alone. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. Remember, faith comes by hearing.